Amen. Good evening. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the New Testament. The text to which I'd like to turn our attention this evening is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As we have noticed through our study of this letter thus far, Paul is in the middle of an ongoing train of thought, an ongoing argument. From chapter 1, verse 10, all the way into chapter 4, Paul is making a sharp and direct case against the quarreling and the division that's going on in the Corinthian church. The Corinthian believers had gotten distracted. They had drifted away from the central anchor of the Christian faith. And they had let worldly values and worldly desires creep into their minds and hearts, and the church had been suffering because of it. And so to counter this congregational drift, Paul has been seeking to reset their priorities, to re-anchor them to that which is of first importance. And the foundation of his argumentation has been a clear understanding of the cross. The cross is what demonstrates true wisdom as opposed to worldly foolishness. The cross is what explains to us who God is, who Christ is, who we are, and how we're made right with God, and how we ought to then live. But he then goes on into a further discussion in chapter 2 about the Holy Spirit. And this may seem like he's going on a rabbit trail, but it's an important part of his argumentation against divisions. The only way that we come to see the cross as the wisdom of God and the foundation of the Christian life is by the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit reveals true wisdom because true wisdom is only spiritually discerned, Paul says. Thus, if the Spirit's prior work is the only reason that we've come to embrace Christ, then what is to come of our pride and our boasting? It's brought to nothing. And then we get to chapter 3, where Paul takes the theme of the Holy Spirit of being made spiritual and having true wisdom revealed to us and compares it to what is found in Corinth. The Corinthian believers had been acting in a way that was contrary to the Spirit, as we'll see. But of particular note for us is that the Corinthian temptation to worldliness, to acting according to the flesh rather than the Spirit, of being divisive and contentious rather than being a peacemaker, that temptation is all around us today. We see it every day in the world, in churches, in our homes, in our own hearts. Fussing and fighting and bickering and posturing and gossiping and grumbling. The church today and we as individuals need to constantly be on guard against these bad fruit, these works of the flesh, Paul calls them. And so that's where we're headed. Let's begin tonight by reading 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 4. Hear the word of our Lord. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready for it, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? Thus ends the reading of God's perfect word for us. Let's pray to begin our time. 
Father, we come as needy people. We need you to open our eyes to see the truth found in your word, to see the truth of the cross and how it relates to us and how we ought to grow up and mature in him. Lord, help us to not be content to be babes, to be infants in Christ, but to grow on to maturity and to bear fruit in keeping with the Holy Spirit whom we have within us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'll begin tonight by saying that I have two simple points drawn from these verses. Two observations for us to see. The bitter, or excuse me, the tragic root and the bitter fruit. The tragic root of their problems and the bitter fruit. So let's begin by looking at the tragic root of their problems. The root of their disunity, which we'll see in the first two verses. Verse 1 says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. The tragic root of their disunity and their problems is their own immaturity. Their own immaturity. He says at the beginning that he could not address them as spiritual people, picking up the theme from chapter 2. When I came to you, Paul is saying, you weren't ready for the big leagues. You weren't full of the Spirit and thriving in holiness. You were not the Spirit-filled ones, the pneumaticoi. You were people of the flesh. You were carnal, your translation might say. But he doesn't only say that they were acting according to the flesh. He says that they were babies. They were infants. They were immature, which is why Paul says, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for you weren't ready for it. Paul came as a good teacher to Corinth, and he does what every good teacher does. He made the teaching appropriate in form to the audience being taught. You don't hand a six-month-old baby a T-bone steak, and you don't hand a full-grown man a bottle of milk. You give them food appropriate to their stage of development, which is exactly what Paul says he did. And this analogy of milk and solid food, or milk and meat, is used several places in the New Testament. Sometimes the analogy is used positively, sometimes negatively. Peter uses the analogy positively in 1 Peter 2, and he tells us to long for the pure spiritual milk of the Word. Milk here referring to the doctrines of the gospel that by their purity and substance build us up to maturity and faith, just like milk enables a baby to grow big and strong. However, here in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is using the language negatively or even ironically. He's using the analogy of milk, which the proud Corinthians likely used as a pejorative against Paul's own plain teaching of the cross. Paul is using this analogy to show the immaturity of the Corinthians. They think they're ready for meat, but they still need milk. And he goes on to say that they still need it. And even now, you are not ready, he says. They were acting like children. But Paul is continuing the argument of the entire passage, incorporating a new metaphor. Just as they thought of themselves as spiritual, when they, and they were, in one sense, made so by the cross. But they were demonstrating by their thinking and by their actions the exact opposite. They're acting fleshly. They think that they're grown-ups. But they're acting like babies. And that's the tragedy of the situation. See, when you see a newborn baby, you see him in diapers with a little bib, you think it's adorable. It's cute. It's wonderful. But if you saw a full-grown man sitting here in the pews wearing a diaper and a bonnet, you'd think he was nuts or you'd pity him. He hasn't matured properly. His growth is stunted. This isn't natural. Something has gone terribly wrong. And that's what Paul is saying here. You Corinthians keep wanting to be treated like grown-ups. You, 
claim to be the spiritually wise ones, but you keep acting fleshly. You're acting like babies. This is inconsistent. This is not natural. It doesn't make sense. It ought not to be. And the Corinthian problem wasn't that they lacked teaching. Paul fed them what they needed. The problem was, what the, that, was that they were not living in a manner consistent with what they had been taught. They were not growing in faith and holiness. They talked like they were the spiritual ones, but they failed to live it out. James talks about these kinds of people. They are hearers of the word, but not doers. They're like somebody who looks at their face in the mirror and then turns around and walks away and completely forgets what they saw. That's what a toddler does. That's why peekaboo is so fun. They can't remember. That's a spiritual baby. It's immaturity. It's inconsistent with the Spirit and with the cross. And I'm sure you've known people like this. They've been in churches their whole lives. They've heard hundreds, maybe thousands of sermons, but when you look at their life, you would never know it. They think they're the mature ones who have their life all together, but they demonstrate by their behavior that they're actually the babies of the church. They ought to know better. They ought to be wiser than this. They ought to have grown up into maturity, and yet they sit in the pew in their spiritual diapers. It's not right. And please note, Christian maturity is not necessarily tied to chronological age. There are plenty of people with gray hair that sit around in their spiritual diapers. And sometimes you see young people with great amounts of spiritual wisdom and maturity. And so don't think just because you've made it another trip around the sun that you have magically matured in the faith. Christian maturity is demonstrated by spiritual wisdom. And it bears itself out with genuine spiritual fruit. Fruit like the ones Paul's lists in Galatians 5. Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Conversely, Christian immaturity bears distinct fruit as well. Which leads to our second point, the bitter fruit of immaturity. The bitter fruit of immaturity. Verse 3 says, For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? And behaving only in a human way. Paul says they're still of the flesh. He takes it to them right on the nose. You Corinthians, you think you're so spiritual and so mature. But you're acting like pagans. You're acting like people that don't have the spirit. And what evidence does he give to demonstrate his claim? He says there's jealousy and strife among them. And the word for jealousy here is a word that was used to describe water boiling. It's meant to picture emotion boiling over into passionate action. In the positive sense, it can mean a zealous defense of something good or a fierce holding on to something valuable. But in the negative sense, as Paul used it here, it means somebody's heart boils over into uncontrolled action. Envy, resentment, rivalry, and unholy competitiveness. And we've all seen this. So-and-so wants a little more attention. They want a little more airtime, a little more of the spotlight. And when they don't get it, they begin to pout and to posture themselves so that they get seen. Or they begin to make comments. Why do you think so-and-so seems to get all the singing solos? Why can't I get a little more teaching time? Why don't they ever come and ask about me? Why don't, why don't they reach out to me? Why haven't they prayed for me? And slowly but surely, envy and bitterness creep in. And that produces waves in the church ripples at first for sure but if unchecked they'll turn into tidal waves of division 
Which leads to another thing that Paul points out from the Corinthian church. Strife. Strife or quarreling. Contention. It's the same word Paul uses earlier in chapter 1, verse 11. It's the verbal form of wrestling. It's when people struggle with one another. They seek to dominate, to control, to force their opinions and their ways upon others. And they refuse to back down or concede an inch. They have a contentious or combative spirit, we could say. They're argumentative, unlovingly opinionated, often, but not always, confrontational, and even contrary in spirit. This kind of fruit can take different forms. Sometimes contentiousness is the blatant immaturity of someone having only one speed. They have only one speed by which everything is either zero or a hundred. Everything is either completely inconsequential and beneath them, or it is a hill to die on. Everything becomes a test of fellowship. Every doctrinal question is either irrelevant or foundational for all orthodoxy. They end up stirring all kinds of debates. They're often found online, exercising their God-given calling personally to correct everyone else's theology in the comment section. That's one especially evident and obnoxious version of a contentious spirit. Another very prevalent fruit of strife and quarreling is seen when we break up into our favorite little groups. When we treat others as those that we want to be around and we leave out and neglect those that we don't want to be around. We surround ourselves with those that agree with us, that dress like us, that talk like us, and we just leave out or ignore others that may not agree with us. And we can do this in a way that convinces ourselves that we're not actually contentious at all because we're not in any active fights. But we've deceived ourselves by simply removing and silencing those that we might contend with. We've made our cliques, and we've removed any dissenters. And that's not biblical peacemaking. That's cliquish immaturity. And this kind of childishness happens in life all the time, from the kindergartners on the playground to the senior adults at the bingo tables. And it destroys relationships, especially in the church. It's part of what was behind Paul's observation in verse 4. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? Are you not merely being human? That is, acting as if you didn't have the Spirit. You're acting like pagans. Pagans do this, Paul says. Cliques destroy community. And favoritism undermines family. Or consider the deadly fruit of a proud and contentious... Another deadly fruit of a proud and contentious heart. That is grumbling. Grumbling and complaining. I've been reading through Exodus again lately and I was absolutely struck this time by the speed with which the Hebrews descend into grumbling. In Exodus 12, we have the Passover where the firstborn of every household in Egypt is killed, but the the Hebrews are spared. And then they're thrown out of Egypt by their very own slave masters. And the text says they actually plundered the Egyptians by God's grace on their way out. And then they're led by a giant pillar of fire and a big cloud. And then they cross on dry ground through the Red Sea. And they watch the Red Sea swallow up all of their enemies. This is chapter 13, 14, 15. And right after Moses' song of praise to God in Exodus 15, we read this. And then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water at Marah because it was bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? At the first sign of difficulty, they grumbled. 
They had just watched God split open the sea and use it to crush the strongest army on the planet. And now they're grumbling in less than three verses. Seems unbelievable. How could they be so ungrateful? How could they be so immature? Don't they remember just three days ago what God has done for them? And yet, the grumbling of the Hebrews and the strife that it creates within the people of God will be a recurring theme throughout the rest of the New Testament. The grumbling does seem totally inconsistent with reality, totally unbelievable in the course of the narrative. Right up until the time I look at myself. We should ask ourselves the same kinds of questions. How quick am I to forget the graces that I have been given in salvation? How quick to thank God? How am I quick to thank God for the providence in my life, even the trials of my life? Because his goodness has seen fit to grow me through those trials? Or am I quick to whine and bellyache at the first little inconvenience? How could I be so immature? Consider all of the sermons that I've heard, all of the training that we've received. How God has been so kind to teach us. And yet, how is it that this immaturity still remains? Someone with biblical and doctrinal literacy ought to know better and ought to do better. Brothers and sisters, each and every one of us, if we're honest, can relate to the Hebrews. And we can relate to the Corinthians. We're not quick to remember and treasure the work that God has done in the past. We're quick to demand our rights and our preferences rather than seeking to humbly serve others as more important to, than ourselves. We want what we want and we want it now and when we don't get it, we throw a fit. We're acting like spiritual babies in diapers, throwing a tantrum. How could they do that to me? Why would God make me go through this? I don't deserve this. We begin to pout and grumble. We envy. We stir up all sorts of strife and division. And each of these bad fruits demonstrates to God and to the world that we're acting according to the flesh. We're acting like a worldly baby rather than acting like we have the Spirit. And Paul makes it clear to us in Galatians 5 what happens to people that do these things. Paul gives a long list of the works of the flesh, which include these fruits of immaturity. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. And then Paul says very clearly in the next verse, those that do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a black and white statement. There's no wiggle room. That is a sobering reality. Each of us is guilty of such things and we have offended a holy and righteous God. We violated His law, grumbled to His face about His justice. We're ungrateful for His kindnesses and we've even used our tongues and our actions to tear down others and bring division. And because of such fruit, we have earned for ourselves an eternal weight of punishment outside of the kingdom of God. But the good news of the gospel the good news of the cross is that He has provided a way of escape. The very simple message of the cross, the word of wisdom that the Corinthians were neglecting to retain, the word of the cross that each of us is tempted to neglect and ignore is the very word that provides the salvation that we need. And the word of the cross is this. Christ has come. He's come born of a woman and fully taking to Himself the human nature that we possess. Fully facing the temptations that we face. Fully feeling the pains and the struggles that we know in this life. And yet he remained without sin. 
Envy never led him to stir up strife and contention. In fact, he's known as the Prince of Peace. He's the royal peacemaker. His tongue never led him to tear down others, but he always spoke of the truth and always did it in love. He never grumbled about how he was being treated, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. His heart was peace. His, his motives were peace, and peace was on his lips. And the fruit of his efforts are those things that we can taste that is true and lasting peace. We're promised that if we come to faith in Him, we will have peace with God. Romans 5, verse 1. All the wrath and enmity that stood between us and God will be totally and completely removed. It's done away with by His atoning work on the cross in our place. We have peace with God, which is the only foundation for any lasting peace in this life. But not only that, the cross doesn't stop there. Not only are we forgiven of all the sins of jealousy and strife, not only is His perfect peaceableness counted to our account, but also we are given His very own Spirit of peace. He promises to send His Holy Spirit to work within us and to guide us in holiness. And this is crucial. The only way that we're ever going to grow in peace ourselves, to grow in peaceableness, to put off strife and dissension and quarreling, is by first having a heart of peace. And such a heart is promised for us in the new covenant. God promises to give His people a new heart, a heart that loves His law, a heart that is remade by the Spirit instead of a heart that is made by stone. And it is from that heart of peace, made by the God of peace and implanted within us by the Spirit of peace, that we can begin to grow in our peaceableness. It's only in possessing a peaceable heart that we will ever grow in bearing the fruit of peace. Only when we possess a heart transformed by God's grace can we grow in being gracious to others. Do you understand this peace? Do you find yourself to be a peaceable person? Or do you find in yourself strife, envy, quarreling, contentiousness? Are you a grumbler? Are you a complainer? Well, then know that the message of the gospel stands for you tonight. Come to Jesus and confess your sins and believe, and He will make you as white as snow. He will grant you the faith that you need, the strength that you need, the atonement that you need, the purity that you need. Do not wait one more moment lest you be found outside of the kingdom of God and under His eternal judgment. And if you have believed, then continue to press into the cross of Jesus. Don't be content for the cross to be mere milk for you. Don't be content with your level of maturity. Don't be like a person who looks in a mirror and immediately forgets what you look like. That person is a fool, James would say. Be a doer and not a mere hearer of the word. Press into the cross and apply it to your life. Learn more. Grow more. Appreciate more. Praise more. Serve more. Pray more. And in doing so, you'll begin to grow in maturity. And you'll grow in peace. And to that end of growing in spiritual maturity, I'll, I'll close us with a few brief observations. Observations from a statement that Paul makes at the end of 2 Corinthians. Paul makes a comment in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 11, exhorting the Corinthians to live in peace. Simply live in peace. Not striving, wrangling, contending, dividing. Live in peace. It's a single word in the Greek. It's an imperative aimed at everyone. It's a second person plural. We could loosely translate it, y'all, 
live in peace. It was exceedingly relevant for the Corinthian believers, and it is so for us today. I've got a few observations drawn from an old Dutch theologian. Number one, to live in peace implies activity. To live in peace implies activity, intentionality, pursuit of peaceful community. To stay by ourselves, isolated from others, without saying anything good or evil, without getting in a fight or quarrel, isn't living in peace. To live in peace implies fellowship with people in a pleasant and harmonious manner. It implies the active pursuit of peaceful relationships shaped by the gospel rather than the mere absence of contention which is ensured by isolation. To live in peace implies activity. Second, to live in peace implies continual endurance. To live in peace implies continual endurance. It's not enough for us to occasionally be peacemakers or to be peaceable every once in a while. To live in peace with our brothers and sisters means that we will be long-suffering. We'll be steadfast in our peacemaking. To live in peace implies continual endurance. Third, to live in peace implies finding a delight in the peace. To live in peace implies finding a delight in the peace. A peacemaker is in his element when he is at peace. He is then as a fish is in the water. He's where he's supposed to be, where he was made to be. It's his natural element. When a peacemaker can be in a peaceable relationship with people, he is joyful. Just as a healthy person delights himself and is of a joyful spirit. To live in peace implies finding a delight in the peace. Brothers and sisters, may we all strive by the strength of the Holy Spirit to live at peace with all men, especially those in the household of God. May we be active in our pursuit of peace, steadfast in our pursuit of it, and delighting in the work of peacemaking, because the God of all peace has first made peace with us in the cross. Amen. We get to conclude tonight by visibly reminding ourselves of God's greatest peacemaking act. That is the cross of Jesus Christ. We have before us the elements of the bread and the cup, pictures of His body and blood. His body was broken for our sins and His blood was shed for our peace. This is the foundation, the simple gospel upon which Paul built his ministry and upon which we build our lives. The simple gospel that the Holy Spirit has revealed to us to make us wise and to help make us peaceable. Admittance to this table is restricted by Scripture to only those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. If this describes you, if you're like the disciples in Acts 2 that were devoted to the teaching of the apostles, which is now found in God's Word, devoted to the fellowship with the saints, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, then we invite you to come. If you've not come to faith and followed in obedience to Christ by being baptized, then let the plates pass. Come to Christ. Be made at peace with Him. And then join us at the table. I'll pray and then ask our table servants to come. Holy Father, we praise You and thank You for the gift of salvation that's found in the cross and the cross alone. We thank you that you have sent your Holy Spirit to make us wise, to reveal to us your wisdom that we might see the cross rightly. We pray that you would keep us, 
that you would make your face to shine upon us, that you would help us to be a peaceful people because we have first tasted of your peace. Please bless this time and these elements. In Christ's name, amen. Table servants, please come.